We are studying the book of Ephesians. That's a letter in the New Testament that the Apostle Paul wrote to really an entire region of churches, like maybe like writing a letter to Oklahoma, all the Oklahoma churches. And in that letter, he addresses some really straightforward issues of the time. And my contention is those issues are probably as big and as complicated today as they were then. And so we're going to put that in modern, in modern vernacular. This lesson, we're going to talk about social justice and Christian involvement in social justice. This is a big deal in our society, particularly now. I mean, we've always been interested as Americans in justice and are committed to that idea, but it's taking so many different forms. One of the reasons it's taking a lot of forms is we keep inventing new rights. Have you ever noticed that? Americans, we have so many rights that people in the rest of the world would love to have half the rights that we have. But we think today certain things are unjust and need to be dealt with that we didn't think 50 years ago. But in general, there's just a lot happening in the world. You have hunger, abortion, the variety of human rights, economic oppression, political oppression. Uh, just there are all kinds of issues. And around those issues are a couple of key questions, and that is, what should Christians' involvement be? Well, I'm going to start with the text in Ephesians. We're going to take a little detour to talk about some background, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to answer two questions, basically. I mean, we'll answer any questions you want, but did Jesus come to end injustice in the world? And then secondly, what is a Christian's role in writing social and political wrongs in the world? What is our commitment to that? What is our methodology for that? Well, Paul addresses this in Ephesians on a, on a little different topic, but I really like this topic. So in Ephesians chapter 6, a little short passage, verses 5 through 9, he's going to address a social issue of that time, which actually is probably about as big a social issue in our time in a little different way. And we're going to use that as an archetype to talk about this issue of social justice. Now, remember our background, just the context of this passage. In our last lesson, Paul said, wives, voluntarily submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And we talked about gender roles. We talked about are Christians inevitably at odds with our culture over gender roles. Then Paul goes on and said, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't exasperate your children. And then he comes to this pattern. So what you can see is he's dealing with all kinds of social relationships, the marital relationship, families, parents, and children. Now he's going to move out into the broader context at large and touch on a really hot-button issue for them, but not a hot-button issue for the reasons you might think. So he begins and he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters. By the way, this is not the same word that is used for women and husbands. There, I translate that by saying, wives, voluntarily submit to your husbands. And we talked about the reason for that, the whole what that actually means and what it actually doesn't mean, but being part of the redemptive purpose. This word is more coercive in nature. It says, no, obey. It's the same word that's used for children with their parents. It's not like children. I'd like you to voluntarily submit to your parents. It's no, seriously, if you don't sub submit, you get spanked. Wait, we don't spank anymore. Your iPhone will be taken away, right? So in other words, it's coercive in nature. This is too. It says, slaves, 
obey. You have a duty to obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. Now, it's interesting that this is a little shocking to our sensibilities. It's a little shocking to us to say, to hear the Bible say, to hear God saying, slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and sincerity as you would obey Christ. In that era, this was considered, this was not shocking. This was, okay, that's the way the world is supposed to work. In other words, there were laws at that time that you had Slaves had to obey their masters. Uh, slaves could be beaten. Depends on the nation, depends on the era, but fundamentally, slaves were property and they could be dealt with as the owner wished. There were some curbs on that, but not many. So to them, this wasn't shocking. This was, okay, Christianity's in line with the way the world ought to work. To us, it seems a little bit uh, offensive to our sensibilities. And so it's kind of interesting that time has reversed it. But he goes on to say this because he's going to talk to the masters also. He says, and masters, treat your slaves the same way. Do not threaten them since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and he shows no favoritism. Now to you and me, that's very socially acceptable. It's like, well, sure. Why shouldn't the masters treat their slaves well? That's what we would expect socially. That was shocking to them. Because in their time, there was no mutual obligation to that. In other words, there was no reason for a master to show that. The master had the upkeep of the slave. Master had the property rights to the slave. Master had every reasonable expectation of making a profit from the slave. Therefore, if the slave wasn't working hard enough, the master should beat them. That was the social expectation of the time. And so this was actually shocking in their era but it seems much more reasonable to us. My point there is that Christianity, it turned, this teaching turns the sensibilities upside down. Whether it's their time or our time, whether it's over this command or the one before it, it turns our sensibilities upside down. One observation here, it completely recasts the paradigm of why we're saying this. The paradigm for, for all social justice, by the way, this isn't true just of slavery. Remember, I'm going to use this as an archetype of, of our a guideline, a blueprint, if you will, for how we're going to go address social justice issues. Because you as a Christian are going to address issues of social justice for radically different reasons than the people in our culture do. He, this is recast. In their time, they would say slaves and masters were governed by legal and economic bonds. Even when the Bible says, slaves, obey your masters, it says it for a completely different reason, as though you were saying, doing it for Christ. And when it says, masters, treat your slaves well, why? There is no economic or political compulsion at that time to do it. It says that's not the issue. The issue is you both have a master in heaven 
and he views you the same in many respects. So what the Bible does do is it has a completely different rationale for how it approaches the issues of social justice. So we're going to see what is the Bible's rationale for what should Christ followers do? How involved should we be politically and socially in righting the wrongs of the world? Let's take a, a little bit of a detour, though, because I want to talk about uh, a f a, some background. And this is the fill-in-the-blank on your, on your handout. This is your participatory part of this. The gospel is inherently socially disruptive. The gospel is inherently socially disruptive. In other words, it's not just about me being saved in a spiritual sense. Even if that's all you want religion to be about, the gospel cannot be contained like that. It is socially disruptive, but not for the reasons that you might think that it is socially disruptive. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Earlier in the book of Ephesians, one of the key ideas that Paul addresses is huge hostility in their culture. You've got Jewish people becoming Christians, you have Gentile people becoming Christians, and they don't like each other. Think of whatever group of people you grew up hating. Whatever group of people seems most like the them to you. Magnify that about a hundred times, and that's the way Jews and Gentiles thought about each other. But now, they're both in the same church. And it's like, okay, this is going to be difficult to get over. Well, here's Ephesians. Paul addresses that issue. He says this. He says, Christ, he's talking about Jesus, is our peace. He's made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. If you remember that lesson, we looked at the sign that was on the Jewish temple that says, if you're not Jewish and you come in here, we will kill you. And they did. And it was legal. Even the Romans said, fine. You guys feel that strongly about it? Just put a sign up. Make sure nobody wanders in here. He has broken down that barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh, meaning what Christ did on the cross, the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new person, think church, out of two, in this case Jews and non-Jews, who are two completely different people, thus making peace. And in this one body, the church, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away, the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, the Jews. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Here was the point of that lesson. Jesus effected reconciliation by what he did, and he affected horizontal reconciliation and vertical reconciliation. And my point to you is that both of these uh, are disruptive, socially disruptive. Let me start with the easy one. The vertical reconciliation is that you are now reconciled to God, and that changes who you are and that is very socially disruptive. Give you a perfect example. When Paul came to this town of Ephesus, 
this is a few years before he wrote this letter back to him, but when he first came there, you may remember this. You can read about it in your New Testament in the book of Acts, chapter 19. The book of Acts is a nice little history of Paul's ministry, actually the early church, but that section is about where Paul went and what happened to him. Well, he comes to Ephesus. Think New York City. I mean, it's a major economic center, huge center of all of what was then called Asia. It's in Turkey today, but it was hugely important and influential. So he comes there and he begins preaching reconciliation through Christ between people and God. In other words, Christ died on the cross for you. Your sins are forgiven. If you trust him and repent, then you are reconciled to God and God is now Lord of your life and he's going to remake you into a new person. And sure enough, it does. And they begin behaving differently. And this message of vertical reconciliation is so popular that a bunch of people become Christians. And this is what I want you to, to realize, how disruptive this is to the society. So many people become Christians, so many people change their behavior that they no longer are worshiping in the pagan temples. That'd be one of your basic first changes. It's like, uh, no, actually, we worship God. We don't worship all these false idols, these made-up things. So they stopped. Well, if you stop worshiping the idols, you stop buying the little images, right? It's kind of like you stop playing golf, stop buying golf balls. Don't need them anymore. Well, they stopped buying these little icons, these images. And if you remember the story, the artisans in Ephesus, I mean, this is seriously a big town, get together and go, our business is really in jeopardy because these Christians have quit buying all our silver and icons and that sort of thing, and it's wrecking our economy. So I'll tell you what we need to do. We need to go get Paul and string him up and make an example of him and get people back to buying our products. And so they have this huge riot. They end up running Paul out of town. Doesn't squelch the church by any means. They begin persecuting Christians, but they, it doesn't change anything. But you understand what was happening. This vertical reconciliation to God had so changed their behavior that they wrecked the economy of the whole idol business. Today, think about this. Suppose, and I'm not making a theological statement, I'm just trying to give you a comparison. Suppose that... Las Vegas, Nevada had so many Christians and they decided that we're not going to gamble anymore that it put the place out of business. I mean, they start shutting down. I mean, you think, whoa, that's a big impact, isn't it? Well, that's the impact. That's the social disruption that happened everywhere Christianity went because of this vertical reconciliation. Does that make sense? So... Being reconciled to God is very disruptive. It's not good for the vice business, not good for business that preys upon human depravity, human weakness, human addiction. Christianity tends to disrupt that uh, segment of society, and rightfully so. But it's not just disruptive because of the vertical reconciliation. That's probably understandable. It was hugely disruptive in a horizontal way. Because sitting in this room, you have people who would, in the world, maybe have been traditional enemies. Jews and Gentiles, slaves and free people, uh, this ethnicity versus that ethnicity. In other words, you bring them all in the same room and you affect reconciliation amongst us. 
that's going to be very socially disruptive. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. This is another book, a letter written to a church in Corinth. Corinth is a huge Greek city, and the church explodes there. They've got massive problems figuring out. Now that we're Christians and we behave differently, it's causing major social disruption. It's causing trouble in the church. They're writing to Paul saying, hey, how do we handle these things? For example, one of the things, that's not what I'm going to show you in the passage, but one of their questions is, what are we going to do about the marriages? Because we have men who become Christians and their wives aren't, and wives who become Christians and their husbands aren't. Should they get divorced? Should they stay with them? What are we supposed to do? In other words, Christianity is disrupting the most basic social structure. Well, Paul says to them, no, don't get divorced. It says if your unbelieving spouse leaves you, there isn't much you can do about that, but don't you leave them. He says, because you know what? Who knows that you might win them over, that your conduct might bring them to Christ. So he says, it's a fair question. Christianity is certainly going to royal that relationship, but here's how you handle it. Then he talks about two more, and here's this passage in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, was a man already circumcised when he was called, meaning were you Jewish? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? In other words, he's not a Jew, and he's physically uncircumcised, but he's also not a Jew. He should not become circumcised. Well, if you remember in the early church, the Jewish Christians, they used to be Jews and they were Christians, they were telling all the others, like, you guys are, you guys are, we're like here, and you guys are like here, you know? And so if you want to be a Christian, you've got to first become a Jew. You have to go be circumcised. Believe me, this was a barrier to conversion. You have to first become circumcised, but not only that, you have to do all the Jewish rules, right? The 613 commandments and then all the extra ones that we dreamed up. You have to do all of that, and then you can become a Christian. Paul says, no, it's more socially disruptive than you think. It says if you were a Jew first, then you don't have to act like you're not a Jew. If you don't want to eat pulled pork, don't eat pulled pork, because that's the way you were brought up, right? And if you're a Gentile, you don't have to become a Jew and start eating kosher and observing the Passover and, and all those things. No, you do not need to do that. Why? He says that circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. What unifies us? Keeping God's commands is what counts. In other words, we've been reconciled in Christ, and so it no longer matters where we came from. And he says you don't have to change your ethnicity, change your physical appearance. You don't have to change those things to become Christian. In other words, God's going to integrate and have peace on a different basis than similarity. He said each one should remain in the situation which he was in when God called him. In other words, there's nothing about Christianity that says you need to leave. Now, there are things that you would stop doing. You have to keep God's commands. There's unity around that. But the way it might play out, by the way, for us is you don't necessarily have to change occupation when you become a Christian. That I mean, that is a, a big deal. It doesn't sound like a big deal to you and me, but it was a very big deal in those days uh, as there were certain occupations that they felt like you must do or you couldn't do if you were a Christian. In general, as long as it doesn't violate God's commands, there's no particular reason. 
If you're a blackjack dealer and you become a Christian, do you have to quit your job? Well, most Christians would say, looking at this, is no. You don't have to quit your job. Why don't you go be Christ's representative inside the gambling place that you work? In other words, he's basically saying that where you came from is not as important as we're going to be unified and reconciled around this. But that's disruptive. But it's disruptive not because of a change in your social station. It's disruptive because of a change between your social stations. In other words, when Jews and Gentiles come into the church together, it's disruptive, but not because anybody changed anything. For example, it's not disruptive because the Gentiles had to become Jews. It's disruptive through the social relay. In other words, they said, no matter what you used to think about this group of people, you're brothers and sisters now. That's what's socially disruptive about Christianity, is the very idea of unity. That is a big deal, for example, in this next situation. He says, were you a slave when you were called, when you became a Christian? Don't let it trouble you. Again, that just sounds very counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For he who was a slave when he was called by the Lord is the Lord's free person. And similarly, he was a free man when he was called, is now Christ's slave. What the gospel does is it changes the social dynamic by putting it in a completely different paradigm. It doesn't say, and it could have said this, and a lot of Christians would like it to say this, if you were a slave when you became a Christian, rebel, run away. You are no longer a slave. God doesn't want people to be owned by other people. That's true. God, you'll see in a second, God does not like people to be owned by other people. But that's not what he said to the slaves, is it? He didn't say, I'm going to disrupt the social order by telling you to run away and we're going to do away with the institution of slavery. He says, actually, I'm going to do something way more revolutionary than that. You and your master are going to go to church together and there you're going to realize I'm free in Christ, and he's going to realize, or she's going to realize, I am now a slave to Christ. Do you remember how Paul opens almost every one of his letters? Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. That is a socially offensive thing to say, because he was certainly freeborn. No one would voluntarily call themselves that. But what does he say? He gives a different paradigm, doesn't he? This is key to our thinking about social justice is what God does is completely changes the paradigm. He does not necessarily change the society, or at least not, in a revolutionary physical way. He says, slaves, you can stay slaves. In fact, that might be a good thing. He says, but you're free in Christ. Masters, you can still own slaves if you want to. But you know what? You are now a slave to Christ. And so what does he say? Then you better treat this person as a brother in Christ. They're no longer to be treated like their property to abuse if you want to. In other words, it changes that relationship. That's the essence of how the gospel is going to transcend the social barriers. It was a big deal then. You have to kind of think about this. If you go to church and you went to the coffee bar in those areas, right? I'm sure they had coffee in their atrium just like we do. 
I'm sure they had donuts, because I don't think you can do church without donuts. So you go in that era, and you go to church, and you're a slave. You are socially like, whoa, way down here. Or you're a free person. I can vote. You can't vote, slave. I can go wherever I want. You can't go wherever you want, slave. We are totally different social strata. So we walk up to the coffee bar together, right? And we're so we're both pulling a little coffee thing. We're going to chit-chat a little bit. Hey, how about the thunder? What do you think? You know, they're going to talk to each other. That was so foreign an idea. It was repulsive to them. The slaves felt so out of place. The masters were like, we don't associate with those people. Now think of their kids. Their kids are in Sunday school together. It's like, I don't like this at all. Well, what is, how does the gospel disrupt society? Not by keeping them apart, not by trying to socially, politically, economically get them to be the same. It says, we're going to, when you come into the church, we're going to be brothers and sisters. That was radically disruptive hugely disruptive. And it wasn't only disruptive for the Christians, everybody else looks at it and goes, wow, that is really different. It became a witness to everybody else as well. The same was true uh, in the Jews and the Gentiles. Jews didn't eat with Gentiles. They were brought up that that made you ritually unclean. It's like you just don't go there, you don't eat with those people, we do not know, they don't wash, you know, we don't know what they do, right? Well, now you go to church, you got to have donuts with them. I mean, come on. This is just not what they did. So it's socially disruptive because of the unifying factors. Does that make sense? It's really important to understand in what way the gospel addresses social issues or we're really going to go wrong on what is our obligation on social justice issues. The tail end of that passage, it says this, you were bought at a price. In other words, he says to the masters that if you're a slave, you're now free in Christ. If you're a master, you're now a slave to Christ. So in the end, you're both slaves. You're both surrendered to Christ as your Lord. And then he goes on and says, listen, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. And by the way, he mentions that because some people voluntarily became slaves. In those days, slavery didn't have anything to do with your race. Slavery was equal opportunity. Uh, slavery, anybody could be enslaved. You could be enslaved for debts. You could be enslaved because you got conquered by someone else. There are any number of ways. It's like, we don't care who's a slave, anybody. Jews could be slaves to other Jews because, they, because of debts. But with the Romans, if you were really enterprising, you could take this risk. You could sell yourself into slavery to a Roman citizen work for that Roman citizen, become a, they would become your patron over time, be a faithful servant for all your life, buy your freedom, all right, after a life of slavery, and then you, your kids could be Roman citizens. Huge deal in that time. Huge deal. It would be like today, and I know this isn't a good analogy because our laws on citizenship are different than theirs, but suppose you were in this country illegally, and you want a better life, and so if you were told you work all your life, right, without any benefits of citizenship, but at the end of your life your children can be citizens and then all these generations go forth together. Well, that might be very appealing to you. Well, it was very appealing to people then. But this is very telling because even though that was a very socially legitimate thing to do, gospel says 
Don't become slaves to men, even for gain, because they did that because they thought it was a good deal long-term, right? Don't do that. He says, because actually God owns you. People should not own people. So I know so far you're thinking, gosh, is he saying that the Bible condones slavery? What I'm telling you is that the Bible does not condone slavery. The command is don't become slaves of men. But what I am telling you is, is the Bible didn't say we're going to disrupt society by abolishing it. Obviously not. Does that make sense? The Bible's going to disrupt social ish things by changing the whole paradigm, not through rebellion, not through uh, upcoming, because the gospel is transcending social barriers. It is not revising social barriers. Hold that thought, because when we start talking about what your and my obligation is, it's going to make a huge difference. We are called to transcend social barriers. We are not necessarily called. Apparently, we are not called. They were not called, and they did not enact it in this way, that they were there to specifically and inherently revise social structures. All right? The point being that the gospel can prosper in whatever situation we are in. When he says, everyone, it's fine for you to remain in whatever situation you're in. Why? Might not meet my personal life goals, but wherever I am, whoever I am, I can meet the gospel's goals. For example, if you were a slave, you probably had a really, really good ministry to other slaves. If you were a free person, great ministry to other free person. If you're old, if you're young, if you're of this ethnicity or that ethnicity, in other words, the gospel purposes are actually achieved through our diversity, our social diversity. There need to be rich and poor. There need to be male and female. In other words, there need to be Christians of all kinds so that the gospel can be achieved. In other words, trying to bring everybody together in some homogenous utopia is not actually what the Bible calls for, and it's not actually useful to gospel purposes. Well, let me pause and see. I doubt there are many questions at this point, but if there are, let me pause there before let's hit the issue itself. How then does this issue of slavery and what we've built up inform how we're going to address the world? Yes. Um, and this probably actually kind of leads into what you're getting ready to talk about. But uh, the question is, God allowed the Israelites to kill women and children, wiping out a whole town when the promised land was taken over. Why did he allow this? Why did God allow... Yeah, it's kind of off the subject, but let's talk about it for a second. Uh, why? It does tie in slightly to this, but that's actually a bigger thing than a social issue. Why does God allow people to be killed by the Israelites when they're taking over the promised land? Okay, I'm, let me turn this around a little bit. This is actually a big question, but I'll try to be really succinct. Uh, but you, you may not get every answer you want out of this. I want you to think about it in another way. Why did God let anybody live in the promised land? Do you ask that question very often? That's actually the interesting question. Why does anybody get to live because they're all guilty. Okay, that's answer number one, and I really want you to think about that because your perspective is, or our natural perspective, hey, it's not fair to let innocent people die. God says, have you ever met an innocent person? I think not. In other words, those people who died were sinners. 
They were in rebellion against God. The real question is, why do they live? Second answer to that. This is the short version, I promise. Second answer to that question, because this is really interesting. It's a good question. It needs some real thought. We need to think about that for a few years, and then we'll talk about it some more. The second issue is that if God's redemptive purposes don't happen in history, nobody gets saved. Everybody is condemned. Israel and everything that happens is part of God's redemptive plan for humanity. And without that happening, nobody gets saved. I'll tell you the great case study on this is in the book of Exodus. Okay, this, take that whole question, let's, let's bring it down to one guy. But it's the same principle. It's sometimes you get asked, why does Pharaoh get such a bad rap for not letting the Israelites go when God hardened his heart? This is the same question. I'm just changing the deal to make it a little simpler. And the answer is, in Exodus, is there's tremendous ambivalence. If you read through it, you'll find times when he'll say, but Pharaoh wouldn't let him go because God hardened his heart. Other times you'll say, and Pharaoh wouldn't let him go because Pharaoh hardened his heart. In other words, there is an interplay between God's sovereignty and free will. There are people who have an option to follow God, and they do not. They're in rebellion against God. And they are condemned. Think of our favorite verse, John 3, 16. God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Keep reading. For those who do not believe are already condemned. In other words, uh, and this may not address this well enough, the issue there is not so much social as it is theological, is that everyone who sins is doomed and is subject to destruction. That is the message of the Scriptures. Judgment is real. Judgment for them came in this way, and that's, in a nutshell, why that happens. I, I think the question was based around the idea of why were the Israelites killing people? Why were the Israelites ever allowed to kill people from a social justice perspective? Well, why were the Israelites allowed to kill people? The Israelites, well, I guess, I don't, I don't guess I'm at a little bit of a loss. If you assume that killing somebody is a social injustice, I'll just have to stop there and disagree with that. You, no, nobody in this room believes that killing someone is always a social injustice. So maybe that I'm not understanding the question, in which case I'll probably just move on. So maybe give me a little more detail because maybe I just don't understand it very well. Okay, next question. How does what you're telling us relate today in social justice? Are you talking only about the United States or the whole world? Yeah, actually, when we're talking about social justice, I'm using the United States as an example because that's where we live, but I actually want to talk about what does it mean to be a Christ follower, a follower of Jesus Christ. I hate to use the word Christian because that means so many things to so many people, but I think you understand what I mean. If we are going to say Jesus Christ is our Lord, we really are Christ followers, how then should we interact with that, whether we're in America or we're anywhere else? What is our attitude toward social injustice? What is a biblically informed attitude toward righting the wrongs of the world? So that's what I'm trying to speak about, but all my examples are probably going to be American. Good question. Well, let's uh, talk about this slavery, and again, let's use it as an archetype. 
couple of passages that are like our Ephesians passage. Peter says, slaves, submit to your masters with all respect. Not only the ones that are good and treat you nice, but also the ones that are harsh. That's really shocking, isn't it? But now that you understand the paradigm shift, you're saying that's not fair. God said, who said anything about fair? Fair is not the issue here. God's changing the paradigm because your motivation for serving your master as a slave is no longer, is it beneficial to me or do they treat me nice? Is it going to be eye for an eye or even the law makes me? Now your motivation is going to be completely changed. I'm a slave to Christ and this is a role that I'm going to play for his sake. Same thing with wives and husbands. Same things with husbands love your wives. What was the rationale? Because your husband's such a good guy? No. Because your wife deserves for you to lay down your life for her like Christ did? No. That's not the rationale at all, is it? I have major problems with that rationale, and the world, when they look at it, assume that's the way you ought to think about it. Absolutely. You will never understand the Christian faith that way because that's not the rationale. Slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when they're looking at you, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for whom? For the Lord. That's the paradigm. So let's go back to the... Uh, to the, this issue and use it then to answer our questions. Question number one, did Jesus come to end injustice in the world? Not in the way we think. I mean, apparently not. In other words, he didn't end the injustice of the Roman Empire in the time. Give Caesar what's Caesar, give God what's God's. He didn't say, although they were waiting for him to say, everybody grab a sword and we're going to end this injustice that's called the Roman Empire right now. No, he did not. That was clearly not his mission. He doesn't say to the slaves, all right, all of you guys run away because we're not doing this anymore. Instead, he says, no, we're going to revolutionize the world. We're going to change the paradigm. And there's a really good reason for that. I'm going to give you an opinion on why. And that is because we are, in my view, unable to end injustice. Injustice cannot be abolished by human means. That's, that has far-reaching implications, but I want you to think about that. I think that Jesus didn't do that because it can't be done by human means. Jesus isn't even slightly interested in saying, all right, got all you people, you're all really motivated, so now I want you to go... I want you to end hunger in the world. I want you to heal everybody in the world. I want you to put down any oppressive government. Two reasons for that. Number one, it doesn't take into account the depravity of humanity in this world. This is an evil world. Satan rules this world. And we're going to talk about that next time, by the way, is the whole idea of spiritual warfare. But basically, it underestimates the depravity of humanity. And secondly, it assumes that you and I know what justice is. You say, well, of course I know what justice is, Terry. Actually, no. We'll talk about that for just a couple minutes and you'll have to agree with me. There are times when you know what justice is. Is it ever good to grab a child and enslave them and put them in the human trafficking? Yeah, okay, that's pretty clear. I'll give you that one. Let me give you a little tougher one, though, because there are other issues in the world. So... Is Israel the economic oppressor of Palestine? Or are Palestinians terrorists and need to be oppressed for the security of Israel? You may have an opinion on that, 
But I want you to stop and think about that for a minute, and you'll pretty quickly realize, ah, not everything's exactly cut and dried because there's some truth on both sides of that issue, aren't there? I'll give you another one. When do workers in third world countries who make your tennis shoes and make my shirt, when does that become a job that benefits them and helps them? And when does it become a sweatshop and it's effectively economic slavery? Well, people have opinions about that, don't they? And politicians and uh, ideologues are trying to argue about that right now, but that's a hard question to answer sometimes. Are they those people better off being economically oppressed? Well, in some ways they are, but in other ways they're effectively slaves, economic slaves, which is right. My point to you is not that there's not a right and wrong. My point to you is, is you and I don't know what it is. We have a very hard time as humans. The book of Job, by the way, makes that abundantly clear. Uh, some people believe that abortion is inherently wrong. Others believe that Stopping abortion is inherently oppressive in certain situations. Again, you, you may say, well, I know exactly what that is, but there are other people who feel just as strong the other way. And my point to you is not to take a side on one of these, is to say that it's not so easy to know what justice is. Is it right for China to have Taiwan, which was a traditional province, or is it right for Taiwan to continue to have their independence? Is it right for Russia to represent the interests of Russians in Ukraine and protect the violation of those interests, or is it right for the Ukraine to continue the status quo of its boundaries, which have changed over time? I'm not taking a side on that. I just want to make the point that you and I we don't necessarily know what justice is. And I think that's one of the brilliant reasons that God said that is not the way to change the world, is for you guys to figure out what justice is and then go take up your swords or take up your political coercive power and go make it happen. That's not how the Bible wants to attack this. So did Jesus come to end injustice in the world? Not at all in the way that we might think. Not at all in the way that we might think. Yes, fundamentally, but not in the way we would think. So then, what is a Christian's or a Christ follower's role in bringing justice into the world? Well, let me just give you a few thoughts. Think about what our mission is. Think about the Great Commission. I want you to go into all the world. That tells me that one thing that we must do is we must participate in all all of the forums where we can bring Christ to the world. And that means that we need to be engaged politically, we need to be engaged socially, we need to be engaged in every form. It doesn't say, go into your churches and be holy huddles. It says, go into the entire world. Our culture in America wants to marginalize our faith. It wants to say, your faith is okay, but not when it comes to health care and not when it comes to public policy. You just sort of keep it in your churches and you're fine. We will not tolerate that. Our mission is to go into all the world. It's not an option for us to be Christians on Sunday and not on Monday. So we, must we be involved? We absolutely must be involved and participate in politics and social issues in the world. Second, what does it say? Go into all the world 
and make disciples of all nations. That's actually our charge, is to go teach them the commands of God, go teach people what Jesus has done, teach them to be followers of Christ. Our uh, mission and our message is the transforming power of Jesus Christ, who is the real bread that feeds people, the real living water, and the real healing. Okay? We're not through with this story, but this is one of the paradigm changers. Because to think that Christians' mission in the world is to feed people, clothe people, heal people, is really missing the biblical imperative. Go into the whole world. In other words, there are no boundaries. Speak into every form you can speak. And make disciples of all nations. In other words, what is it I want to speak? I want to speak God's will into the world. I want to speak Jesus Christ into the world. I don't want to speak my political preferences. I don't want to speak my economic preferences. I want to speak Christ into the world. Okay? Those are a couple of things that that guide us. Our goal is true freedom, and our method is transformation of the human heart. Our method is transformation of the human heart. Fundamentally, because I'm going to argue that political solutions and social solutions are not enduring. We are unable by human means to overcome the depravity of humanity and to really institute true justice. I can institute my justice if I have enough power. You can institute your justice if you have enough power, but it will not be real justice. There has never been a supreme ruler, an emperor, an all-powerful king in the world who has been what you would consider just. Make sense? Our goal is to transform hearts through the message of Jesus Christ. Now, two things. Let me give you, kind of temper that just a little bit or actually give you the rest of the picture. That means that we will inevitably be subversive and disruptive. So Christians, by the nature of what we are doing, we will be socially disruptive. That makes sense? The very message that you take is going to turn the world upside down. Don't worry. Like Paul in Ephesus, it's going to affect the economy. It's going to affect the politics. It's going to be subversive in huge ways. The Christian church conquered the Roman Empire, literally conquered the Roman Empire in 200 years without any Christian ever picking up a sword. That's transformation. That's more a model of what we're called to do. And then finally, and I'll make sure we hear this loud and clear, we must feed hungry people. We must clothe people. We must heal people. We must care for our neighbors, but not for the same reason that the secular world does. If you understand where we've come so far, you're probably asking yourself, well, if we're here to bring the gospel to the world, that's going to be socially disruptive, and you're telling me that I can let the slavery and the human trafficking and all that stuff go on. We are guided by the message of Christ. Love God, love your neighbor. But we do it for a different reason. In other words, we do not do these things for our neighbor, the healing, the feeding, etc., for merit. 
This is not something that the more people I feed and so forth, then I'm going to get into heaven. No. It's not about merit. It's certainly not about good feeling, which, by the way, most of your secular friends, at the bottom of it, do good deeds to feel good about ourselves. That's human nature. But we don't do it so that we can feel like we're good people. Think pay it forward. Think what goes around comes around. Think random acts of kindness. Those aren't necessarily bad things. They're just terrible motives. That's not why we do it. You can do a good deed without feeling good about it and get rewarded. In other words, it's not about the feeling. It's also not about profit. As Americans, let me tell you, talk about Americans, we love to put profit and goodness together. That's a good thing about Americans. We are more motivated towards justice than most of the governments in the world. Thankfully, thank God that we live where we live, but we kind of like to put profit in there. And so we've come up with this idea called enlightened self-interest. Now, we don't call it that, but I'm going to explain to you what it is, and you're going to see it everywhere. Enlightened self-interest says this. I'm going to do well by doing good. In other words, if I can go do good deeds and profit from it, bonus. That's not why Christians go feed their neighbor either. Does that make sense? You can come up with a scheme to get rich by doing good things. That's not a Christian's motivation for doing good deeds. It's not the good feeling. It's not for merit. It's not for profit. And it's certainly not to make the world a better place. That goal in and of itself is a humanitarian goal. Christians do many humanitarian things, but that is such a little goal. In other words, the gospel is transcendent. The gospel is going to transform culture, society for all time. It's going to transform humanity to say, I'm going to change this corner of America for 20 years, 50 years, 100 years. It's not a Christian motivation. Now, will that happen? Oh, yeah, it's going to happen. But it's not our motivation. Does that make sense? You, we must go do these things, but we do them because it's who we are, not for any extrinsic value that we might get. That's the fundamental difference between the way Christians promote social justice and the way secular ideologies promote social justice. Let's sink in a little bit and see what I mean. There's, there is a, a tension. The world says if you're going to go attack the ills in the world, there must be a tangible reason. Christians say, what a quaintly curious, foolish idea. We're going to go attack the ills in the world because of who we now are, created in the image of Christ. And we're going to do it in a much more effective way than throwing money at it, we're going to do it in a much more effective way than trying to get our form of government here or this to happen there. We're going to do it by transforming human hearts. And then you're going to make generational shifts. That's the Christian approach to social justice. Not for its own sake, but for the gospel's sake. Questions? None? It's because they figured out I do not understand your questions. I'm sorry for that. So the idea around social justice is Christians are going to be involved. We have to be involved. We have to participate. We're called to go in the whole world. Christians are involved with a very specific aim, and that is to take Jesus Christ to the world. I can do that as a slave. I can do that as a free person. 
I can do that in whatever station of life that I'm called for. Does that mean that the scripture says, but if you cannot be a slave, well then, by all means, take advantage of getting your freedom. But is that your goal in life? No. Now that I'm a Christian, I have a better goal in life. I'm going to go do God's will in the world. Can slaves give a cup of water and food to people? Yeah. Can masters? Yeah. In other words, can you do God's will wherever you are? Absolutely. Well, go speak that to the world. That's going to affect the way you vote, which is another kind of complicated part of this, but really philosophically, go vote. Go vote for things that you think progress God's will, however imperfectly in the world. But never, ever think that's what we're doing as Christians. That's a little piece of what we're doing. We're actually transforming hearts and minds. That's the greatest impact that, that the gospel has on the world is changed people, not changed governments, not changed processes. Those may be all good things. I'm not saying they're bad, but it's not what we're here to do because that's inherently very temporary. You change hearts, change everything. You change a government, you change some things, maybe for the better, for 100 years, 200 years. You see what I'm saying? The gospel is transcendent. It's bigger than that. So by all means, go engage the issues of our time. Speak truth into those issues. But remember, we do it because of who we are. In other words, here's a great story, and I know I've told you this before, but it, it caps this perfectly. Mother Teresa, you guys all know who Mother Teresa was, says when she was alive, one of the things she did, she's working, uh, taking people off the streets who are dying, and then she's just being there for them. Has this hospital, but it's, nobody's getting cured. She's just going to give them some human dignity before they die. In other words, you're going to have some love and some caring. We're going to clean you up. We're going to take care of you, and we're going to be there with you when you die. So she gets a lot of criticism for this, by the way. Secular world, she, I don't know if you realize this, but Mother Teresa was not that well thought of by a lot of people in the world because they thought, you're very ineffective. You're not curing poverty fast enough. You need to be forget those people and go do something you can do. In other words, very results-focused. And so Mother Teresa gets interviewed, and the interviewer says, doesn't it bother you that what you're doing is not successful? Everybody you're caring for dies. Does that not bother you? And her answer is classic. She says, I was not called to be successful. I was called to be faithful. That's the difference between Christian and secular ideologies. It doesn't matter if that person's going to die. They're still going to get the love of Christ. It doesn't matter if that person is a social outcast. They're still going to get the love of Christ. And let me bring this home to you in a really hard way. It's very easy for us to say that the people who have been sold into human trafficking need our help and our compassion, and that is true. But only Christians think that the people that sold them into human trafficking also need the transforming message of the gospel. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're called to something far bigger than just changing the world. We will change the world, but we're called to something far bigger, okay? So I want you to go transform the world. Go speak to injustice where you see it, but speak to injustice because it's now who we are. It's what we do. We have a powerful message of Christ to take to the world, and the best way to do that is to care about people instead of beating them over the head. We will change this country faster 
by changing hearts than by making laws. The best thing you can do with a law, and I'm not against making good laws, but my point is, as Christians, we're far more interested. You change a heart, you change a family. You change generations. You change a law, at best, you get grudging obedience. Does that make sense? So let's go change the hearts of the people around you. And then next time, come back and we'll talk about angels and demons and who's on your side and who's not on your side. All right? See you guys next week.